Tonight, we are going to witness the most anticipated match in the history of professional film. For the dozen in attendance, and for the handful listening around the world, it's time for Remake Rumble! Hello and welcome to Remake Rumble, the podcast that pits a classic film against its remake, the old guard against the new, in a dazzling display of motion picture pugilism. Two films enter, one film leaves. Here's Johnny! Johnny Lee, that is. And I'm joined by my co-hosts, Daniel, the Tyneside Turnip Gilmore. Hello, Daniel. Hello, hello. And David, Disney Shill Rattigan. Hello, David. Do I need to do like a kind of ghostly response as well, or can I? Can I, I just say hello? It's, it's it's all right. I'll just I'll just say hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi. How how are you doing? Well, in honor of the recently released Doctor Sleep. Today's psychological horror Hootenanny sees 1980s Kubrick classic The Shining do battle with 1997's Stephen King-approved TV miniseries of the same name. Needless to say, spoilers lurk ahead. So, which production will win this Shining shindig? Place your psychic premonitions now. Well folks, it's time for another filmic fracas as two of the most preeminent men in their fields go toe-to-toe for one sweet, sweaty hour of mayhem. In the red corner, it's visionary director Stanley Kubrick with his horror masterpiece, The Shining, the tale of a struggling novelist who tries to kill his family while caretaker of an isolated hotel. Nominated for two Razzies at the time, but since selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry, The Shining is suspenseful, it's enigmatic, and it might well be the crown jewel of Kubrick's jam-packed oeuvre. But which brave soul dares to challenge one of cinema's finest directors? It's one of literature's most prolific writers, Stephen King, who wrote the best-selling book on which the film is based. King was none too pleased with Kubrick's adaptation and joined forces with director Mick Garris in 1997 for a televisual take on the same material. More closely following King's narrative and earning two primetime Emmys in the process, the Shining miniseries may be lesser known, but it certainly got the resume. So let's pit King versus Kubrick in a haunting hoedown worthy of the remake rumble moniker. You could cut the atmosphere with an axe. Well, I have consumed so much Shining in Mm. such a short period of time for the sake of this podcast. The other night I had an actual nightmare of those bloody two little girls after watching four hours of Shining material before bed. So, David, did The Shining drive you bonkers? Well, actually, before I answer that question, I want, maybe I won't answer it, who knows, but I want to know exactly (laughs) what happened in that nightmare because that was too, that was too ambiguous. Well, I'll tell you, I was trapped in my apartment with some unknown child and i knew these two little girls i knew there was something outside the door that was coming for me that was threatening me and then eventually i went and i looked at the people and there they were staring me in the face so yeah that's how much that doesn't sound scary to be honest oh come on look through the little people in the door and those two little girls are there staring at you you don't think that's scary Uh, well i reckon you could take them uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Also, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but it turns out they probably weren't really there. So that's a good point as well. That is a good point as well. And I think also the fact that they kind of transform into two bloodied corpses is what helps in the film. Yeah, exactly. I think they're they're, already they dead. seem all right when they're just dressed, kind of you know, normal. <laughs> but when they're covered in blood, that's when it that's when it gets a bit freaky. I suppose when they ask you to play with them as well, it's a bit scary. I mean, it's it is a scary film. I'm gonna I'm gonna preface that by saying. It is a very scary film. It is a scary film. I don't think it was scary. I've never been scared. Well, I was going to ask you, actually, Daniel, because you have a weak heart, and I wondered how you managed to get on with this film. Were you no, okay? No, I have a weak... I have a weak ass. Thank you. Um, <laughs> it was... That would also uh, be affected by the film, though, I assume. It's true. It's true. No, I put down some towels for the seepage. It was an interesting experience. I wasn't, like, let's say, terrified, but at the same time, it does stick with you. The film does at least. Like, the film really sticks with you. Like, the visuals are still really, really, like, compelling to this day. I know sometimes mm-hmm. you've got these old films where they've been, like, parodies and pastiche so many times that you kind of get, like, inured to them. And I know I've seen the Simpsons parody of this probably about 50 times over, like, before <laughs> I even watched The Shining. But it's still, it's still really effective. Um, so I was actually trying yeah. to think about what makes the film so unnerving and why is it that it gets under my skin so much. And I think part of it is the cinematography and the imagery. 
So I think one of the things that it does really cleverly, in a way, it's I think it's so unnerving because it inverts a lot of horror tropes. So you know, it uses lots of you know wide wide lenses. There's lots of open spaces. The hotel itself, in which the film is set, is quite an ordinary environment, right? It's not a spooky gothic hotel. It's just you know. For all intents and purposes, quite a nice-looking hotel, but I think that all actually lends itself to to the scariness. So, for example, with the wide open spaces, it feels like you know at any moment there could be some you know presence coming out of that door or this door. It kind of leaves open the space of possibility. I think when you've got this kind of unnerving feel to a film, it's mostly because it doesn't let you have a, a safe space to retreat to. Yes, at no point does Shining ever let you sit still and let you think that everything's okay. Even if nothing's happening, like the whole start of the film is about 10 minutes of them just driving. The whole time you've got these really ominous synths going on. The dialogue is just not quite right. I mean, obviously Jack Nicholson is basically clinically insane, so that whole thing just always feels really, really unsettling from the start. And in that opening shots, you already have the the long shot of the camera following the car as it makes its way around the mountain road, almost like it's stalking them. And there's a lot of shots like that where the camera will will follow the characters around. Most famously, you obviously have the, the shot of um, Danny on his tricycle cycling around mm. the corridors with the camera just behind him. And uh, yeah, I think that also lends itself to, to a kind of creepiness. So when did Steadicam first really come into cinema? Because this uses it pretty liberally. Well, this is one of the earliest uses of it. Um, I I don't know when it was first used, but I think this really pioneered a lot of that. Um, Yeah, I mean, a lot of the Steadicam shots were done by the actual inventor of the the Steadicam, Garrett Brown. He worked Mm -hmm. on the film. Because that was one of the things I most liked about the film. Again, kind of coming back to the feeling of never being safe. At all points, the characters just always seem to be moving. Like, Jack tends to be always hobbling or, like, running towards danger, whereas Shelley's always running away. I'm saying Shelley, Wendy's always running away. And Danny just seems to be kind of drifting around. Like, no one ever feels like they've ever sat down. Yeah, even when the film cuts, it's, uh, it's fading as opposed to hard cuts. I mean, there's a few kind of hard cuts throughout, but most of the time it's just shots kind of bleeding into one another, which is quite interesting that nothing is ever allowed to, to settle almost not even the time scales as well the time seems to be completely distorted even around the hotel as well like if you'll notice the way that the the, the title cards are one of the few jump cuts like you were saying but also it goes from you know from one day to suddenly is it months in advance like three months or something then it goes from tuesday to saturday then it goes from saturday to like 11 p.m to 1 p.m or something like basically everything feels really weirdly compressed like you're never sure about when things are and and how long things have taken it's that that was lends into that feeling of unease as well. And I think whilst the time is compressed, the geometry sort of spins out of control. So, you know, famously, the geometry of the hotel doesn't make sense. So, for instance, there's a scene early on, I I think it's actually only in the the American cut as opposed to the European cut, where the camera is following them along as the hotel manager is is showing them around the hotel. It's following them along in the big lobby and you had those really big, tall windows, the floor-to-ceiling windows, and then the mm. camera goes underneath the stairs. And sort of where, where the window should, should be, you see a couple of people walking into the lobby. So essentially, if, if the geometry made sense, they would be walking from outside into the hotel, but the film makes it look like there's a corridor there. So mm. none of it really adds up. And everyone always speaks like they are either telling a ghost story or they're in a ghost story. Like in the job interview, like he basically just takes, it's time out of his day to explain. Oh yeah, by the way, um, everyone here was murdered. It was murder-suicide. Um, yeah, and he says his wife is uh, a ghost story and horror film addict. Which I mean, that right. can't be true. Yeah. I do not believe well, that Shelley Duvall is consuming these <laughs> horrific tales in her spare see, time. See, I think that is uh, an early indication of you know Jack's complete lack of consideration for his wife. He's happy to mm. just make up a, a casual lie. Uh, to, mm-hmm, to move yeah. on in the conversation. He doesn't really, he's not bothered about whether the, the murder stories would affect his wife or not. At risk of defending Jack, 
it does look like she hasn't slept in about six months. So that does kind of work out. <laughs> well, obviously, famously, uh, Stanley Kubrick was extremely mean to Shelley Duvall on the set. Um, <laughs> so it is quite possible. And, you know, her, her hair was falling out by the end of the, of the production and she was um, seriously stressed. So, yeah, it could be that she hadn't slept for several months. He sounds like the real horror story. I mean, what was it hundreds of takes for just like walking through a door? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Like whether it's worth that effort because to me it seems like the people involved with this film were incredibly stressed out by the end of it I and mean, obviously they're happy to have worked on it because i mean it, it, it really is a masterpiece but do people deserve to go through such horrific conditions to get to that mm. point i would probably argue not yeah i mean they- i don't think you have to suffer to make great art i i worry that it's very easy to fall into this kind of love of authorship that seems like be taking over film and tv and yeah I, I agree kind of i agree i don't want to fall into that trap i do think that like i said it is a masterpiece you can't like deny it it's an amazing film i'm not going to pretend it's not i'm not going to say oh yeah they made something that was shit like it's it's amazing i don't think it was necessary to struggle through it and i'm sure that no Shelley exactly. and, and jack exactly. and everyone else would probably have loved to know beforehand that they were getting mm, into that mm. uh i agree yeah. but i mean for what it's worth ignoring that the performances are incredible and it is interesting mm. that the way that using those long takes and then apparently picking often picking the later takes when they'd kind of lost some of their inhibitions and had kind of started almost i've seen it described as mugging um mm-hmm. does add a lot to the the performances on screen particularly when we talk about the the remake which we will everything there is very flat i would say whereas opposed to this everything's very interesting here i think speaking of cast can we talk about scatman crothers because i was actually really pleasantly surprised by him like i mm. really liked his performance on that um i think it's a really easy role to miss but there's kind of like a quiet passion and dedication to it that I really appreciate and I think it's kind of easy to overlook when you've got people like Jack Nicholson lapping his tongue like a <laughs> fucking blood apparently he was actually involved in one of the longest takes on the film I mean I've read it either took between 88 to 148 takes bloody hell yeah the one where he is talking with Danny uh, Jack's child but that scene's so intense again we'll get onto it but there was a that they match that scene terribly in the TV show, but that scene is really intense and really important. You have to get that right because it basically sets up what the what what's so important about Danny, what's so different about the hotel, and and why everything's so weird. Like it, it's a great tone setter. So I'm not glad that they suffered through it, but I'm glad that they got it right in the end. I will say before I forget that the actor who played Halloran in the 1997 series, I also thought was pretty good. Melvin Van Peebles, I think his name is. <laughs> I disagree. Oh, really? I totally disagree. uh, We'll get onto it. We'll talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I liked his his eccentricity. Mm. Another Kubrick fact, I think Eyes Wide Shut, is that not the the longest production ever or something? Or at least longest Hollywood production? Wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it's ridiculous. It really is ridiculous. Great films, but come on, man. (laughs) Chill out. That's that's why they had to kill him, just to get used to the sound stages back. (laughs) (laughs) I also think it's a, it's a little bit worrying as well. You hear from the behind the scenes documentaries that he was particularly cruel to to Shelley Duvall and Scatman Crothers. Everyone else seemed to get on okay with him, and the justification is because you know he he particularly with Wendy, you know, he wanted her to be at the end of her tether, and by essentially abusing the actress, he would get the performance he wanted. But I think there's something you know uncomfortable when you think that those are the two actors who received abuse. I agree. And it's interesting because the co-screenwriter, um, Diane Johnson, she said that in the way that they were writing the script, she had a lot more to do. And basically because Kubrick wasn't happy with her performance, he just outright said, you know what, forget it. And just cut out her lines. Yeah, I think there is a criticism you could make of this film where Wendy doesn't have enough to do, doesn't have enough screen time, and is... I don't know, just lets herself be abused by Jack, at least until the very end, where she finally whacks him over the head with a baseball bat. Great moment. Great moment, yeah, fantastic Classic moment. moment. I mean, that, that scene, actually, that whole scene, I think, is probably my favourite in the film, one of my one of my favourites. And I do think, uh, in its defence, I mean, that's, that's betraying my thoughts, um, the 1997 miniseries oh, no. does give a lot more screen time to Wendy, gives her a lot more to do, and she's a much stronger character from the word go. Stronger, uh, yes, but I would say there's no personality to her, really, which is really fascinating because definitely I liked that element, but I thought the portrayal was not 
was not what I would have wanted. I thought Shelley Duvall, even with less screen time, delivers a much more iconic performance. Mm. Completely agree. Even if she looks a bit like Olive from Popeye when she's doing it, <laughs> which was a thought that came into my mind when I was watching it. And then it turns out, I didn't know this, apparently she played Olive from Popeye in the live-action right. Popeye film with... Uh, uh, with Robin Williams, so right. obviously someone else had that thought as well. They, they made her do 150 takes of eating a big can of spinach as well, but it was worth <laughs> it in the end. So one of Stephen King's criticisms of this film, because famously Stephen King really hated Kubrick's film, which mm. is one of the reasons why he then went on to have so much involvement in the 1997 miniseries. The hubris mm. of that man. Mm. <laughs> the Kubrick of that man. So... Yeah, so one of the things that he didn't like about the film was he claimed that the Shelley Duvall Wendy character was misogynistic and she was basically just there to be shouted at and abused and was not the Wendy that he had envisioned in his story. So, Daniel, what did you think of that? Do you think there's some justification for that? I think it's misogynistic because the character that he wrote is actually misogynistic. Um, I kind of agree with what David was saying before, where it's like, yeah, fair enough, Wendy was probably a more stronger, well-rounded character in the 1997 version, but the actual arc that she goes through in the 1980 film is so much more compelling and so much more interesting, partly because of the performance, because it's so mysterious, because they don't tell you much about it. I think the actual character is much closer to what Shelley Duvall portrays than it is what the 1997 film is. I think Stevens are kind of lying to himself in the sense that he thinks that it's not misogynistic what he did. Basically, she's still just there to be shouted at. She's just, Stephen King just gave him, give her, sorry, more lines. That's not making it less misogynistic. That's just giving her more airtime. That doesn't kind of solve that problem. Oh, yeah. And she gets knocked around a lot in the 97 film. Like, ridiculous. I mean, there's a bit where she falls over um, because she slips on a ball. And there's, like, literally no reason for her to (laughs) fall over and slip on a ball. I mean, it's like something from You've Been Framed. Mm. It's it's one of the best pieces of slapstick I've ever seen. I was creased. <laughs> I was absolutely cracking up. There, there was an editor who literally could have had the power to get rid of that bit. And, you know, we sat, sat through this for, what was it, like five hours? Yeah. He could have done us all a favour by getting rid of that, that little no, bit before. It would have helped he everybody. Taken, if whoever had edited that had taken it out, I would have absolutely crucified them. So that was your favourite part was, of the film, was it? That, that, Sorry, not film. Mini, whatever, it is, whatever it was. I mean, it was basically three films, three shit films, I think. Like, that brightened the whole thing for me. But, but that's the whole thing about Wendy. Like, she's not, like, what else did she do in the TV series other than walk around, do a bit of cleaning, and then get shouted out and hit? Yeah, and it's interesting because they make, they, which I thought they were going to do more with. At the very start, they said something like, um, I think she was painting or something, and then they cap it off at the end by saying she's now oh, got God. this successful art gallery. We can't, but we can't at no do that point now. during the film <laughs> does she do anything arty so mm-hmm. it, it just seems completely pointless I it seems like they're that. throwing that to the audience to say look we fleshed her out a bit more but really they they do nothing with it okay well i think the argument would be that in the in the mini series she from from the very beginning is in some position of control because in a way jack is trying to save his marriage she's trying to save his family and in a way, he's trying to prove himself to her initially. And there's several scenes throughout the film where she basically says to him, you know, you better get your act together or we're out of here. So in a way, even though she ends up being abused by him, because that is the nature of the character, from the word go, she has some measure of control. She do- she never uses it, though. She never uses that control. It's always just an empty threat. Yeah, to me, it felt very contrived. I mean, yeah. it's like they just kept going and going and going, which I suppose maybe is the reality of abusive relationships but in the way that it was presented in the film it uh, in, sorry in the, in the miniseries felt quite tiring because you know I, I think that's really why one of the reasons why the film works so well is that it's a tight two hours mm. you don't have any of this kind of back and forth whereas I felt like a lot of the miniseries it felt like it was just padding out really until that final hour which then it became more like the, uh, the film and it was suddenly a lot more compelling to me mm. I think for me that I compartmentalize these issues so I, I agreed obviously that the the miniseries is far too long uh it's, it's crazy it should be half the length and i think that is what makes everything feel so tiring and exhausting but i think in and of itself i don't have an issue with the way that wendy's used i mean i don't have a way that wendy's an issue with the way that wendy's using either film i think they're just they're doing two different things and i think so first of all i would say that regarding the film I think you can 
make an argument that Wendy should have had more screen time and should have had more to do in the film mm. uh, prior to her battering him over the head with a baseball bat. <laughs> but I don't think that her, I don't think her weakness and, vul- and vulnerability by itself is necessarily sexist because I don't think the film is condoning Wendy's passiveness mm-hmm. and willingness to tolerate Jack way beyond what she should. You know, from what we can tell in the film, you know, Jack is manipulative, he's charismatic, and she does seem to be stuck in this abusive relationship, which, you know, as you say, you know, maybe the nature of this, of this relationship is such that she lets it go way beyond what she should do. Um, so I don't think that's a problem. But then regarding the 97 miniseries, I think it is interesting that she does have a little bit more nuance to her character. And there is a scene early on where she visits the doctor with Danny and afterwards the doctor is having a conversation with her and he's saying things like you know how how's your marriage things like that and does he ever hit you and there was a subtlety to her answers there which I thought was quite effective you know it wasn't like oh he's amazing I would do anything for him like you might expect the Wendy of the Kubrick film to say but neither is it like you know oh he's a bastard in which case you know why haven't you left him yet there's there's more nuance to Mm. it there and yeah, I appreciated that. I'm, I'm not trying to defend necessarily the, the, the actress portrayal or the way it's executed entirely throughout the film, but I do think there's something admirable there about the attempt to give her a bit more nuance. Yeah, there's definitely yeah. something to be said about the 97 version fleshing everybody out. Mm-hmm. Personally, though, I think that while I like the idea of it, it almost reminds me of when people talk about Star Wars films and they say oh, it's great to have all these kind of extra bits and bobs that you can read afterwards because you get more of the backstory. To me, it's just like, actually, you don't need any of that. And I think the reason The Shining, the Kubrick's Shining works so well is because it is just a distilled version of what was good about King's book. Whereas King's take on the same material is he's just throwing all the stuff back in that Diane Johnson and Stanley Kubrick very cleverly said, actually, it's completely irrelevant. So just like the the number of flashbacks is like is laughable in the ninety-seven oh, version. Yes, completely. I mean there's like a point where he says I think it's the kid. I'm I'm trying to remember now. I mean this it was a very, very, very difficult watch for me, so I've kind of forgotten the nuances myself <laughs> of what I watched. But there was a bit where there'd been like already at this point like four flashbacks thinking, what is going on? And then mm. I think one of the characters says something like Oh, there was this time in basketball, and I was I was counting down the seconds until there'd be a flashback, <laughs> and lo and behold, there's suddenly this scene where they're in a basketball court, and whatever happens, some stupid thing happens. I, I can't even remember what happens. Something with the basketball, and maybe a nosebleed. Maybe I'm making that up. I don't know, but it just wasn't needed. And I think, again, like I was saying earlier, all of that stuff, it's just like padding. I get the idea. I get the impulse to kind of really flesh out these characters, and you know, there are some interesting ideas to that. I mean, the fact that Jack in this film, as I understand it as well, is, is in the book as well, is, is like this, is not a bad guy, but actually it's the hotel, the Overlook Hotel itself, that with its ghostly ways manipulates him. So he's a more sympathetic guy, he's a guy struggling with alcohol. I, You know, interesting things, but ultimately I think don't work. I don't know why I'm defending this, but I would say that... I don't, none of us know... <laughs> I mean, honestly, I would prefer that we didn't even watch it, quite quite honestly. I, I, I feel like that's a part of my brain that I want to scrub clean. But then we would have missed the haunted topiary. Yes, yes, Right, before yes. we move on to the haunted topiary... I, honestly, I could. Oh. I would have died happy not seeing the haunted topiary. I think oh. I'm going to be rest, like restless in my grave now as a result so, of that. The first time that you see the haunted topiary is not as bad <laughs> because you never see it actually move. It's just like Jack's you know, he looks up and the line's a little bit closer and he looks oh, over on. there and it's so obvious. Can we just say it? It's just relatively, I'm saying it's not as bad. Okay. Was there ever a point in your human life when you looked at those animal bushes and thought, they're not going to come to life. There's no way they're going to do that. <laughs> exactly. This is Chekhov's topiary. Okay? All I'm Christ. saying is, initially, like, okay, this is, this is a very silly idea, but whatever. But then when they start yeah. to move, when you get the CGI topiary, my God... Is there anything less scary than CGI topiary? <laughs> and the fact that it uses it as a cliffhanger moment as well. Like, oh yes! my god, what's going to happen now? 
even better than that cliffhanger that as soon as the episode ends you go to the next one the threat is gone there's no more threat they're all completely <laughs> fine none of them are moving and he goes oh yeah what's the problem and the episode just completely forgets they ever did that and then they try it again they try and do it again it's so good it's so good this is I completely disagree I absolutely loved watching this it was fucking awful but I could not look away it's oh, my favourite kind my of bad God. film what's the wrong only problem with you was, the only thing that was that was bad about it was that it was six hours. If it had been ninety minutes, that would have been like the room Agreed. level of badness. Like, yeah, like this okay, is almost yeah. like we're getting onto like Mortal Kombat two, like like Mortal Kombat Annihilation kind of levels of just dross. Where I'm just like I'm, I'm luxuriating and now this is just this is like almost a John Waters film or something. Like, <laughs> this is amazing. This is so good. Um, what really annoyed me was when they tried to. Well, it wasn't when they tried to do the CG stuff, it was when they tried to have like dialogue scenes, which is why I don't think the Wendy character worked at all, because they can't write. Stephen King doesn't know how people work. Well, I don't know if he wrote any of his dialogue, but if he did, then he No, just he did, he wrote the whole, this work. is his handiwork. <laughs> and interestingly, I think, I don't know if this is used from that, but when Warner Brothers bought the rights to The Shining book, when they were going to make oh. the original film, he had written his own screenplay, and... Mm-hmm. Kubrick was just like, forget it. I'm not. I'm not even going to read that. So I don't know if they use that for this. But I mean, fair play to Kubrick because I think he was right. Yeah. He, he again. He has human eyes and ears and a brain. Like he looked at it, and went, "This is shite. I'm not doing this. Get someone else to do it. Stick it on like a off like forgotten cable channel somewhere. I just hope that it never gets seen." I actually thought right at the beginning that maybe there was going to be a more comedic tone to the film. You know that early conversation <laughs> that Jack has with the hotel manager played by Elliot Gould. Oh, no. A- yes. A.K.A. Monica oh, from Friends no. Dad. And it's yes. really daft. And they have yes. this conversation about Denver croquet. Oh, God. And they're talking so seriously and earnestly about this ludicrous made-up game. And the whole thing is completely daft. And at, at first I was like, oh, this feels like Twin Peaks. Is this what this is going to be like? <laughs> yes. This is, that's, I wrote that. This how is dare interesting. You? Exact note. How dare I wrote that you? Exact note. No, no, no. This how, is no how, how, I'm sorry. How dare well, because you? Because if, if you think about it, if that was intentional, I think there's something quite genius about it. And I thought, is this going to set it the tone? It was not intentional. Well, Johnny, I it was. That Johnny, now, it was not I intentional. I realise that now having watched the rest so, of the film. Good. I'm glad. I, I, did, I, have to, I have to say something. I disagree completely. When was Twin Peaks made originally? It was obviously early 90s. Early 90s, yeah. So, this had ample time to watch Twin Peaks and think, wow, that was pretty good. But it looks easy. I bet I could do that. <laughs> this is their earnest attempt to re- to reproduce this. <laughs> this is them trying so hard. They tried so hard to be Twin Peaks and they got it wrong at every single level and that's what I can't... I, I love I love that bit. It was like, they think they were being really weird. They thought they were being like really tricky. But it was so obvious Elliot Gould didn't even look like he was trying. <laughs> I've never seen someone like punching the clock harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Where he says like, "Everyone calls me a bastard" or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, oh god! But then he goes. Oh, he talks about being yes, like a so victim good. of political correctness or something because he thinks that Jack. Oh yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and he's like, Quite frankly, it makes me sick. Yes. But what's crazy as well? What's crazy is by the by the nature of the show, he is actually correct. They should not have hired him. So yeah. I don't even understand why they have that line in there. Is that to suggest that actually political correctness has gone mad? You don't, you don't understand. Subtext is for cowards. You need to leave that in the past. <laughs> that, that happened so long ago. That was at least an episode ago. Don't worry about it. It's fine. He didn't exist. He didn't say anything. What happens is now. Th- what happens? What matters is this child watching a, a bush burning going, Look, they're burning! As if I couldn't see it burning in front of my eyes oh my god yeah and i mean a lot about the remake is bad but the child is really bad in the 1997 (laughs) version i mean it's like night and day compared to the original um and that's partly the acting um but it's also like his imaginary friend i mean can we talk about his imaginary friend because Mm. oh yes the imaginary friend well you you two go you two lead the conversation because i I want to see what you've made of him tony the 90s ghost nerd (laughs) <laughs> yes yes Tony the blue power ranger hovering slightly above the ground like he's some kind of magic man and he changes the signs of a skull and crossbones it's very scary oh, it's so no. good it's oh, so no. good how could you not look at that and just think this is a work of art I how did, can you not look honest, at that I will say actually I was every time he popped up in the film uh, in the, I keep calling it film every time he popped <laughs> up in the TV show I did yes. think this guy is a massive idiot. I hate him. But then when you had 
So in this film, as opposed to the uh, original, you have The Shining is more like you can see visions. But in the TV show, it makes explicit that actually what you're seeing with The Shining is like a vision of the future that hasn't necessarily come to pass, mm-hmm. um, which I'm assuming must be closer to how it's done in the book. So what I thought was really interesting was the kind of twist at the end where it's revealed that Tony wasn't just some ghostly imaginary friend. Or at least this is how I read it. He was Danny from the future. Yes. Is, uh, is that right? Or am I misunderstanding that? Right because it was it. played by the same character at the graduation. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the stupidest person alive because I never even put those two things together. So That's I don't know. I don't know correct. if I thought that was good, um, but it certainly was an interesting twist. It certainly elevated that element because before that, I was thinking, "Why on earth is this guy in these goofy glasses hovering around above the Grand Canyon or whatever it is? What's what's happening?" There's one shot that Tony is in, which is either genius or terrible, where Danny's standing outside room two one seven for the first time and he's deliberating whether he's going to go in or not, and then just. Mm-hmm. Just into the frame, you can see the side of a man watching him, and it's mm. it's quite creepy. And then it cuts, and it's oh, it's Tony. Um, it, I don't know. I quite like that shot. I think. I, but that's that was probably, probably just like probably the shadow of a camera or something. Yeah. yeah, that that shot works. But then they they can't have you be scared of anything, mm. so they immediately have to go. No, no, don't worry. It's fine. It's just Tony. Go, oh my god! Oh. <laughs> you no, know, I, I was more scared when I realised it was oh. Tony. Oh, every single time they have any kind of threat, they immediately diffuse it. Like the, th- the things with the with the hedges, there's never ever allowed to be any kind of menace. And have we talked about the soundtrack yet? By the way, speaking of diffusing menace, because oh I legitimately thought that this was basically a ripped from like a Disney film about a, like a dog that becomes a chef or something. <laughs> like halfway through, like there's like plinky plonky, do 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 do, having a comedy time. Everyone's having a great time. And then sometimes they'd have some high strings. They go right back to the you know, dog goes on a quest thing. Can I take this opportunity to tell you a Disney fact? Oh, God. Johnny's sat telling Disney mm-hmm. facts. Right. Is, uh, actually, okay. I've, actually, oh, okay. I've got two. <laughs> this is highly unorthodox, but I'll allow it. I do have a few as well, if you want me to uh, slip oh, them in. Well, you, you might if we not... want to kind of mark out this territory now. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to mute myself now and I'm going to walk away. Just, you guys have fun. Grab a sandwich. Right, David. Great. Did you know Mike Garris, who directed the miniseries, also directed one episode of Disney anthology series The Magical World of Disney and that episode was called Fuzzbucket. Have you seen Fuzzbucket? <laughs> I haven't. I'm familiar with the anthology show. I didn't know that though. That's interesting. Okay. What is Fuzzbucket? I'm intrigued by the title. I don't know. Well, you, don't, you don't even know? Well, what's the point? Get me all excited like that. <laughs> right. Oh, speaking... This is a bit of diversion because I wanted to talk about anything that isn't Disney. Uh, when, <laughs> when did Round the Twist come around? Oh, that must be... Mid nineties, exactly. Round the twist was scarier than this. Oh, it was pretty weird. So this has no excuse. Like I know you're saying this thing about the Twin Peaks stuff, but this has no excuse. Mm. I, I I really hate that you keep bringing up Twin Peaks because to me, I mean, my it's like my two core interests are Disney and Twin Peaks, <laughs> and I'm just being assaulted from every direction. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead with your I Disney facts. I think <laughs> here we go. I think that the Shining 1997 miniseries was God. better than. Half no. of the original Twin Peaks. Are you joking? Wow. The second, wow. you know, like, the, are you joking? You know, like, this, like the, the the three quarters of Twin Peaks, which like is incredibly tedious after David Lynch leaves. <laughs> I think this is better than that, which isn't to say it's good, but it is to say that that's particularly terrible. I think he must have just chucked him like a Molotov cocktail in his garage for what he just <laughs> done to his mind there. I wow. know. I, I, I All right, believe let, you just said. Let that. me diffuse the situation with a second Disney fact. Yeah, calm me down. Calm me down. <laughs> Did you know? Pixar director and editor Lee Unkrich, who's worked on Toy Story, Finding Nemo, Coco, Uh, loads of stuff. He is a massive fan of The Shining, and he leaves lots of Shining references in his films. For example, uh, the carpet, the famous carpet from the Overlook Hotel, uh, features in the Toy Story films. Yeah, it's Sid's Uh, carpet, isn't it? That's right, yeah. They are very nice carpets. The brilliant carpets. Can we talk about the colour in this film? Because I was trying to... The 1980s one, mean. The 1980s one, yeah. Right, okay. Because I was trying to call... Yeah, let's get back can... to the good stuff. Let's, let's get, get back to the good stuff. stuff. Well, I will say that... So, <laughs> so back to 1997. <laughs> no, 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 no. Both films feature the colour red a lot. A lot of the bright, violent reds. Um, but particularly in the 1980 film, 
you have that, and then you have that contrasting with a lot of greens and also golds. And I was trying to work out what was significant about that. And it's, it seems like throughout the film, you have these scattering of, of bright red objects in the background. Danny often wears bright red clothes. He he does wear a Mickey Mouse jumper as well. I should he, yeah, presumably that was your favorite bit. That, that jumper that was, bit was terrifying. Man. Yeah, just incredible. I, I, excuse me. <laughs> I was on the internet trying to see if there are any shops selling those jumpers. No, no, I want the Apollo USA one. That's the one I want. The one where Kubrick admits he did fake the moon landing after all. Yes. After all, that mystery just came out and said it. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is, I'm, I do want to talk about like colour and stuff, but I think what's more important than colour is the patterns. What I've kind of noticed a lot about The Shining is it seems to be about repeating patterns constantly. All the patterns on the floors are all like tessellations. All the Native American things all over the walls are all patterns. And mm-hmm. It all feels like it's repeating over. Um, well, I think you have these kind of cycles of violence, and I think that is reflected in, in a number of ways, and I guess probably one of those ways is the amount of red. But um, other kind of things where you have the references to the Native American artifacts and the design motifs that are throughout the hotel... A lot of people obviously have discussed that maybe that's talking about Native American genocide. Yeah, so the, I don't think the TV series mentions the Native American connection, but at the beginning of the film, the manager mentions that the hotel is, is built on an ancient Indian burial ground and that when constructing the hotel, the the builders had to fight off Native American attacks. And what did you guys think of that, because I guess there's there's a criticism that you know it's just yet another film that mystifies Native American religion. But on the other hand, there is maybe this hint of a of a larger theme there of Native American genocide. Yeah, I think it's probably just hack writing on Stephen King's part. I think he's just wanting to have some kind of mysterious ancient thing to have underneath it. I don't think it was anything deeper than that. It doesn't ever dig into it any more than that. So I. I can't see what message... If he was trying to send a message by doing that, I don't know what message he could be trying to send. I, I would actually agree, and I think maybe Kubrick then picks up on it and maybe deepens maybe. it, because I would agree that it seems to be a recurring theme in King's work, that he'll just throw that out whenever he needs something of that nature. Whereas I think yeah. with the Shining uh, film, that kind of underlying violence, what is kind of a, it's an inherently evil place because right. of the history... That's the thing as well. Like it mostly focuses on the 1920s. Like it, it doesn't really go back to the like Native American stuff. Like you'd think it'd be kind of like, like some kind of Native American gathering. Otherwise, if it was like trying to go back to that, but it actually goes back to the 1920s. I'm not well, sure. Well, you do that's have the reference of... to the Donner Party as well. Uh, true, true. Kind yeah. of you know you're around right. the same time as the you know the pioneers. Yeah, you're right. I, I did forget about the story. That's a good point. As an aside, I did think it was interesting that in the film where Jack is talking to Danny about the Donner Party. He tells him the truth about it. He's like, yeah, you know, they were in wagon day, covered wagon days. There were a group of people who got stranded and they resorted to cannibalism. But in the TV series, when Danny asks him about the Donner Party, he shrugs it off and changes the subject. And I thought it was a nice little right, contrast. Right. It is a contrast, but I think it shows that it's just the TV series shying away again from any kind of threat, just any kind of like malevolence that might be holding over. It's like, oh no, it's, it's all fine. Like, don't worry about it. We'll just kind of brush well, it Well, I, I think it's actually probably the film very consciously responding to... So the t- I think it's the TV series very consciously responding to the film. I think that mm. Stephen King is so displeased with the film and so um, intent on making his, his own thing that he probably very consciously that that scene probably irritated him because he really hated this idea of Jack being crazy from the word go. The Jack of his book is a man who is struggling with alcoholism. He's a flawed man, but he's a man who is genuinely trying to be better. And I think that that scene in the car and the film probably really irritated him because it's another scene where he seems exasperated with his wife and he seems perfectly happy to you know talk about nasty and appropriate subjects in front of his child so when he goes to make his version he's like no i am not going to do that i am going to show that jack is not the kind of person who would do that in front of his child no i suspect that's totally right i actually have a theory about that car scene because it's shot in a very similar way you have lots of overhead helicopter shots uh, very similar to kubrick's version but then there's a shot that's a little bit different where a car overtakes Jack's car 
and it seems completely irrelevant. I mean, there's a lot in this film that's irrelevant. So maybe, again, it's just there wasn't a prudent editor who said, you know what, mate, you don't need that scene. But I suspect that isn't what happened because as part of one of those shots, you can see in the background this big mountain. It's very, very, very framed by the window of the car. And it re- resembles Mount Hood, which is one of the famous shots in that 80s shining opening, uh, yeah, yeah. Mount Hood in Oregon. And as that mountain is there, Jack lifts his hand up to the other driver, um, lifts, sorry, lifts three fingers up to the driver and says, read between the lines, pal. Obviously talking about the fact that he's putting his middle finger up to the guy. Mm. But he's almost putting his middle finger up to that shot. And I don't know if, again, I don't know if I was reading too much into it, but to me that seemed like it was effectively a very explicit like call out of the original film well interestingly in the the book the volkswagen is described as being red and it's red in the tv series but in the film it's yellow and when dick is driving back to the overlook hotel he he passes an accident and there's a red volkswagen that's been crushed by a lorry uh, and that's commonly oh. interpreted as Kubert saying, like, you know, haha, this is my own vision. And that is okay. so I wonder if almost there's this kind of conversation is back and forth between between right. Stephen King and Kubrick yeah, that, that makes a lot through of sense, the medium yeah. of Volkswagens. So is Stephen King's main complaint that Kubrick didn't treat Jack right? Because in, in a way, I kind of agree with him that Jack did get too crazy from the start. But if, is that his only complaint? Or I think he's got three complaints. He's okay. He doesn't like the way that Jack is portrayed as crazy from the beginning, as you say. So it's important okay. for him that Jack is trying to be a better person but he is his alcoholism and his vulnerabilities exploited by the evil in the hotel he didn't like the way that wendy was portrayed as i said he thought it was misogynistic and more generally he thought that it was all surface no depth he admitted that it was a really beautiful film but he thought there wasn't really much going on underneath it Okay, that, that's good because that just means that I can kind of write off Stephen King for a lot of his opinions. That's that's good to know. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy that he would think that, particularly on the third point, because as we've said, I mean, there's just no depth at all to his version. His version is basically a family go to a spooky hotel, green ghosts start popping up, <laughs> and that's it that is the subtext the subtext yeah. is that ghosts are scary basically that's what's great about it it's like the 1980 film is kind of like well what's real what isn't you know what's happening what isn't like you don't know for the longest time and then when Jack is out of the freezer you kind of question everything again like maybe it is all real maybe the, the hotel does have magic powers like who knows what's going on the whole time when you're watching the 1987 film is going no it's just a spooky hotel it's full of ghosts like you get called is that real they go yeah it is it's all real they're all ghosts there's never, like I said, there's never any chance for subtext to develop. There's never any chance for questions or like spooky mysteries to go about. It's just Stephen telling you what the characters are thinking, what they're doing, how they feel about what other characters are doing, and exactly how scared they are about how all the spooky things are happening. I think there's something to that. I think in a way you can see them as two kinds of gothic horror stories. So Stephen King's is a kind of straightforward spooky ghost story <laughs> about a haunted place where uh-huh. bad things happen. And it uh-huh. do, it does kind of it, it it uses a classic gothic horror motif of there being this place where terrible things have happened and those terrible things have etched themselves into the very fabric of the place. Right. But it's definitely a much more straightforward story, whereas the Stanley Kubrick story is one about arguably, you know, impressionable people in a highly uh, effective environment, driven crazy by their surroundings and possibly imagining things. Because there is a degree of ambiguity, um, I think, in the story, which is important to Kubrick's vision. Yeah. Whereas I think in the King story, there's no ambiguity at all. But neither of the stories are complicated. They're both straightforward. It's just the strength of storytelling. That's the difference between them. Like, Kubrick's story isn't difficult. Like, at the end of the day, it is still about a spooky hotel. Like, it's maybe it's cavern fever, maybe it's ghosts. They kind of leave that open, but ultimately, that's kind of all it is. Like, but it's the just difference, a, a ghost story. The difference is that whilst the surface level story, I agree, is very straightforward, it's a film that is, is ripe for endless interpretation. Uh, yeah, and uh, and I think like like a lot of Kubrick's films, it's you know you could you could it's not hard to follow what's going on plot wise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a child can watch The Shining and follow it. I mean, they might be seriously disturbed, but they could follow follow along. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but then Kubrick is essentially asking you to figure out what's really happening, 
um, or at least you know offer offer one interpretation of what's really going on. It's almost like a puzzle. But you can tell simple stories without having all these complex ideas and characters and all this kind of stuff, and still have it be really compelling and engaging. Like that's basically what you know Pixar does really well. Like the simple things, just told with a degree of, of finesse. But then when you get down to it. 1997 has no ability to tell a story. It doesn't have to be about like it doesn't have to have war and peace. Just if you're going to tell me a ghost story, make it scary. If you're going to tell me a romance story, make me feel like they're in love. You know that kind of stuff. And they fail. No, they I would agree with that. But equally, I mean, not to. I mean, I, obviously, I like Disney, right. but I think even with them, they are simple stories, of course. But you can still engage with them. I think on a deeper intellectual level, right. you can't do that at all with this remake you just can't there's just nothing but at the same time you can appreciate on the surface level even if you don't dig further beneath it it's still an an engaging and compelling surface level story like kids aren't looking for like the subtext and the interesting bits like that's that's not what's important oh yeah like like it's still an interesting surface story as well as as having maybe that's the problem here because maybe actually it's like it doesn't know who it's trying to deal with because yeah if this was a cbbc special fair enough but the fact that it's Firstly, trying to go against what is generally perceived as being one of the greatest movies ever made, and then just doing nothing to elevate itself. I mean, obviously, we've discussed a couple of remakes already, and one of the arguments people make for remaking a film is that you're bringing something new to the table. I mean, what did this bring that was new to the table? Nothing. Yeah, totally. And again, like similar to your Disney thing, I'm not going to give this a pass for saying, oh, it's aiming for a younger audience. No, like I said, Round the Twist was scarier than this. Go- goosebumps were scarier than this. The Power Rangers villain is more scary than half of this stuff. Like, it's not an excuse. Something I think that you're drawing out a little bit, I'm starting to think about, is in a way, what is quite interesting is that this is maybe not a remake that was made for purely financial reasons. Like, mm-hmm. there is some artistic disagreement here. Now, that's yeah. not to say that they're both artistically valuable, right? The, perhaps the 97 remake is, is complete trash. But nonetheless, it is interesting that somebody thought, you know, I do not like that movie and I want to make my own version of this story. And I think yeah. so many of the remakes that we will look at in this podcast will be made because some studio basically sees some, you know, nostalgia market right for exploitation. But at least there is something more interesting driving this production. I would watch the 1997 version of The Shining three times over before I had to sit through The Lion King again. The, the modern Lion King, I mean. Oh my God. Hand, I, hand you know on what? Heart, I hated The lie. Lion King. But I would say the complete reverse. To me, that actually made me think, God, The Lion King, maybe that was actually a good film. Oh, I'm sorry you've lost me now. Maybe Jeremy Irons was wrong. Th- this this might be the part where we have a break. Okay, this this is, might be the end of the podcast. This might be the final episode. I'm sorry. Maybe it's time for the quiz. I think this is time for the quiz. All right. Quiz time. <laughs> Speaking of shite. <laughs> no, he's put a lot of effort into this. I think that's not very nice. Put at least eight to ten minutes into this quiz. Oh, good. I'll have you know. Right. All right, here we go. Question one. God. Mick Garris, director of 1997's The Shining, uh-huh. also directed a making of documentary of which classic film? A. The Thing. B. The Shining. C. The Lion King. Or D. Breaking to Electric Boogaloo. This is, this is very silly. I hope you appreciate this. This is this is not the level of quiz I would usually expect. <laughs> Um, but it's I don't know though I mean maybe The Shining did he do one of The Shining alright you're going to go for Shining and David what are you going to go for I don't know it's an interesting thing when you brought up the fact that he'd done stuff with Disney before and I should say actually the child in The Shining remake who's by all accounts awful um, he actually did either of you two watch Recess Yes, yes. you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely. He played the... Gus in uh, in Recess. What? Was he actually the person as well? They actually did the voice. Actually, the, no actually way. Gus. Cause he's got the exact same haircut and everything. Yeah, and, wow. and you know what? He's really good in Recess. So I don't know what they what was going on I've here. Got a lot of time for Recess. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna say the Lion King. Interesting, interesting. Okay. Well, the answer is in fact the thing. Oh, a remake Rumble favorite. Ooh. Wow. Okay. Okay, question two. Oh god, there's more questions. Go on. Who did Stephen King try to persuade Stanley Kubrick to cast in the role of Jack Torrance? Was it A, John Travolta, B, John Malkovich, C, John Cena, or D, John Voight? Man, I would 
kill for a John Travolta starring in The Shining. That would be my dream. It's gotta be John Travolta. It has to be. It's a terrible idea, but that's exactly the kind of idea that we come up with. John Travolta. It has to be. I'm gonna say D. That seems the most reasonable. And D is correct. What? Well done, David. What? This is on the height of Saturday Night Fever. How could he not be considered for this? He also suggested Michael Moriarty for the role, but both were turned down. Okay, question three. Which 1980s comedian did Stanley Kubrick consider casting in the role of Jack Torrance? Was it A, Billy Crystal, B, Bernard Manning, (laughs) C, John Candy, or D, Uh Robin Williams? Oh, my brain is buzzing. I can't. I can't handle this. I'm just imagining all these people in the same roles. This is all good. Maybe they should just remake The Shining um, loads of times with these different <laughs> actors. Unfortunately, John Candy is no longer with us. Rest oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's um, true. A, in fact, are any of those guys still alive? Oh, Billy Crystal. It's oh, the yeah. only one left standing, I think. So it's not Billy. It's not Billy Crystal because it's not the '90s yet. So he wouldn't have been hired for anything. Um. So there was. <laughs> It's gotta be Bernard Manning. It has to be Bernard Manning. It's too funny for it not to be true. Oh god! Oh my god! It can't be. It has to be. The way that the universe works, it bends towards the ludicrous. It has to be Bernard Manning. I was wrong on John Travolta, but it has to be Bernard Manning. Bag bagging, Manning. Frodo Baggins. I'm gonna go for Robin Williams. Well, yeah, okay. Before you tell me the answer, you know who would have been really good at mugging. Jim Carrey, if he'd been around for this, oh, he could have shining. Yeah, that he could have mugged with the best of them. You want to? S- anyway, sorry, go on. The answer is, in fact, D. Robin Williams. Yes. Oh, damn it. So oh, come on. Kubrick was considering him, but he saw Mark and Mindy and thought that he was too manic for the role. Okay, question four. Outtakes of the Volkswagen Beetle travelling towards the Overlook Hotel were repurposed for which Ridley Scott-related film? Was oh. it? A. This is easy, this is easy, this is easy. <laughs> There's a lot of pressure on Dan to this right now. Was it right. A, Halo, Nightfall, uh-huh. B, Blade Runner, uh-huh. C, Thelma and Louise, or D, Gladiator? Thelma, again, Thelma and Louise is too obvious. I don't want to say Thelma and Louise, but I'm going to say it because it's going to make it's going to make <laughs> it really funny when it's not that anyway. So just I'm going to say Thelma and Louise, let's just do it. David? So I'm going to say Blade Runner because I know that to be true um, because that was the original ending as I understand it. Um, really? They re- it wasn't actual footage but it was kind of like the B-roll kind of thing from the same shoot. Um, and an interesting point as well by the way this could all be wrong Johnny could completely pull the rug from under Great. me after this but Kubrick was actually scared of flying so he wasn't involved with that shoot at all that was the uh, that was the second unit. You are completely correct. Yes. So in the, Do I get any bonus points for that little extra sprinkling at the end? Oh, little sprinkling why not? Of magic? Why not? So that is... Why does he get four, Why do I get an extra sprinkle? What's my sprinkles? So you've had enough <laughs> sprinkles today. Um, so yeah, the as you say, it was it was reused for um, the ending because the, the studio forced this happy ending on the end of Blade Runner in the original. And it's basically shots of the, the, the Volkswagen Beetle driving along. Uh, with Harrison Ford explaining how everything's basically fine and it sounds like he cannot be arsed. Okay, final question. Jack Nicholson was supposedly fed entirely on what throughout the production of The Shining? Uh Was it A, peanut butter sandwiches, Uh B, cucumber sandwiches, Uh C, cheese sandwiches, or D, ectoplasm? That's that's just too silly. I won't accept that. (laughs) I don't believe that cucumber sandwiches or... What was the second one? Third one, even. Cheese sandwiches. Cheese sandwiches. I don't think... I just don't think they've made their way across the pond. I think they're too distinctly grotty Britain. A cheese sandwich? It's not exactly like an ancient secret. They didn't dig out of a tomb. <laughs> well, I don't know. I kind of... Cheese sandwich makes me think of a sweaty man eating it at a King's Cross station. But that's, that's all right. I would eat it at King's Cross. I'm not going to apologise for that. I'll live my truth however I want to. <laughs> What are you going for? Yeah, I, th- I think it's peanut butter sandwiches. Okay. I I, I think it's cheese sandwiches, but only because the nightmares make more effective uh, parts of mania. Well, for once, Daniel is actually uh, correct. I'm the best. Come Scott, on. This is no the way. Way. This is worth like triple points, isn't it? And yeah, like, do I get the sprinkles right. this time? You don't get Do I get the hundreds and thousands? Give him, just give him the sprinkles. Just show yeah. him up. Yeah. 
Yes, look at the sprinkles. Cheese sandwiches in America. I don't. I've never met an American who <laughs> eats a cheese sandwich. But grilled grilled cheese sandwiches. They're like iconic, aren't they? Like basically. Well, that's every... what I mean. Grill. So when you add the grill, that's when that that to me feels like that's the American bit coming in. Just a cheese sandwich on its own. That's the kind of pathetic meal that a Brit would begrudgingly eat. No, you're thinking of like a crisp sandwich or something, which I, I still will defend to this day, by the way. If you put crisps in your sandwich, that'll still work. I know people look at me like a weirdo, but that's fine. No, 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 no. You're wrong. You're wrong about The Shining 97 and you're wrong about crisp sandwiches. Well, I think we'll have to put it to the polls. Let's put it to the people, shall we? Let's... I don't know. I don't know how this would work, to be honest. I've, n- I've never run a vote before. <laughs> Uh, All right. So, in summary, Daniel, <laughs> which which of these films do you think was the better production? I think the winner was all of us as we were watching The Shining. Uh, no, I think that 1980 is a better film. Okay, I'm going to say this now because I know I've got the platform and I've got the ability to say this without David rudely interrupting me. Oh my god! I have the ability to Here say. Here comes this fascist spiel. So, so when it comes to the 1997 TV series, it's bad. But it's exactly the kind of bad I wanted. It's exactly the kind of bad I need. It's one of my essential vitamins and minerals. And if it had been one episode shorter, I think it would be one of those uh, iconic The Room-style uh, cult classics. I'll, I'll defend that. David? 100% definitely The Shining 1980. I just think The Shining 1997, from the first second till the last is garbage. I don't think... I, I almost don't think there's a single redeeming point about it, frankly. Right, right, um, right. I found it incredibly tedious. Mm-hmm. I found it not even so bad that it was funny. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was bad. I think it's really empowering that we actually have a full lobotomy patient on our podcast. Like Some people say we don't promote <laughs> diversity enough, but I think it's really powerful that we've got someone with such divergent brainwaves to the rest of the human populace. We're putting forward ideas that have never been heard before. Something that no one would ever say. No one would even consider prior to this podcast. So, thank you for that. My pleasure. My pleasure. Johnny, what did you think? Because I think this is the part we have to pretend we actually care what you think. The Shining is clearly the better of the two. Uh, uh-huh. It's one of my all-time. Sorry, favorite. can you just clarify which? which one? <laughs> yeah, you can't just say The Shining. That's the whole point of this. <laughs> I'm sorry. So I mean, that clear- was very, uh, very Kubrickian. But <laughs> leave it open to interpretation. That's right. Yeah. The Shining 1980 is clearly the better production. Uh, it's mm. one of my favorite films of all time. I would say it's a near perfect film, even. Um, I think it's, this is a good man. I like this guy. It's a, it's, <laughs> I like this kid. Uh, <laughs> For some reason, it is just so haunting and hypnotic, and it really gets under my skin every time I see it, as evidenced by the fact that it gave me literal nightmares. <laughs> I think that the 1997 TV miniseries was overall not very good. <laughs> However, I do think it's more entertaining than yes. David is giving credit for. I think. Well, thank you for listening to Remake Rumble. That's uh, <laughs> we're done. We're finished. It's a, it's an overly long, badly edited series with some very questionable casting choices. It's also twice as long, but half as good as the film. <laughs> but having said that, I don't think it's completely without merit. Like I do think the attempt to make Jack's alcoholism, you know, one of the central, you know, ideas in the film and his wrestling with that. And although it's not very well executed, I do quite like the ending where Danny gets some closure. And as you mentioned, this sort of twist where it turns out that Tony was him from the future, maybe? Uh, Okay, I think I'm about to get off this train, but go on. But overall, I think its flaws... Yeah, I I think that its flaws ruin everything else, particularly its length. And even some of the individual scenes are so long. Well, that's... That's why your VHS player has a fast-forward button. <laughs> uh, well, there we go. The Shining. That, that I'm shining now. I'm shining with all the energies. <laughs> well, thank you, gentlemen, for your company and for your wisdom. And thank you, dear listener, wherever you may be. Remember to subscribe to Remake Rumble on Apple Podcasts or your other preferred podcast player. And please do give us a rating and review. 
Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to receive all the latest Remake Rumble rumours, Disney propaganda, and updates on Daniel's ongoing buttocks breakdown. <laughs> Christ. See you next time. Is there anything that we want to potentially say now that we might be able to insert anything that we've missed? Yes, I'm, I'm not legally liable for any of this. This has all been used against my consent. None of this is actionable. I don't know any of these people. I appreciate our law enforcement and our military.